Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. In today's episode, I wanted to give you a bit of a different view on buying and selling businesses by talking to Jack Horwitz, who is an associate solicitor at Leeds Prior, who are based in my hometown of Norwich. Jack talks to me about the different types of exit, trade sales, management buyouts, and the pros and cons of employee ownership trusts. He also talks about the role of a solicitor in a business sale, that the focus is on issues relating to employment, property, disputes, the company's share history, and insurance. All that boring, but pretty important stuff. He gives his view on what makes an attractive proposition for a buyer, how to approach business valuation, and the financial and legal due diligence process. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Yes, can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, happy to be here. Um, This is my first appearance on any podcast. Be shocked to know, I'm sure. Um, So I'm Jack Lewitz. I'm an associate in the corporate and commercial team at Leeds Prior Solicitors. So what we do in the corporate commercial team, our our main work is buying and selling businesses, achieving exits for different types of businesses. We work mostly on the selling side just because of the nature of our place in the market. But yeah, I've been doing this for about seven years now. So been into it for quite a while. It's been, been good to me so far. Nice. What was what sort of sparked your interest in the corporate side of law? How did you get into that? Yeah, well, when I was coming through uni, I did economics, thinking I'd either end up in some kind of finance role or I'd go into law. And I ended up going down the law route, still not really knowing exactly what type of law I would go into. But when you do your training contract as a lawyer, you go around four different areas and I um, so I did some employment law, some commercial property law, and then corporate commercial, some disputes law. I knew I wanted to be on the business side, and I was always interested in kind of the economics of buying, selling businesses. Wanted to be in that world. I didn't think I'm the necessarily the argumentative type to be in the disputes world. So corporate commercial suits me, suits me down to the ground. I think. Nice and. Can you sort of give me a sense of the sort of size of transactions that you've worked on? Like what types of businesses come to you looking for your advice when it comes to selling? So our sweet spot in the market is really deals between 1 million and 10 million. That's that. Is that turnover or EBITDA? Well, as a a total purchase price. So that... Total purchase price, right. That purchase price is, is calculated really before we get involved, but that's usually based on a a multiple of EBITDA, basically, or some other valuation technique, however they figured it out. But but typically, normal deal price is somewhere between 1 and 10 million is really our, our kind of sweet spot in the market. As some are bigger, there's a, a few that are smaller, but that's where we normally fall. So do people normally come to you with heads of terms? They've already kind of agreed the outline of the deal. At what point in the process do you tend to get involved? Yeah. That's interesting because there's no exact way that it always happens or no real typical way. I suppose we would always prefer to be involved earlier rather than later. Generally, we can help help shape the deal and help give ideas of how a deal could be structured. But 
the reality is quite often they come to us as a fully formulated deal where an offer has been made, an offer letter perhaps has been given with a set of, these are the terms of the transactions, been given to a seller. So really when we come to it, the terms of the deal have quite often been pretty well formulated. Yeah, I guess sort of how, you know, just sort of thinking it from the point of view, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be at the very beginning of their journey and are looking for sort of advice on what they can do to build their business to make it an attractive proposition for buyer. So I guess, you know, can you talk a little bit about how these businesses are valued and what it is in a target that a buyer values highly? I know it will differ from industry to industry and deal to deal, but, you know, if there's some general general advice, that, that'd be useful. In terms of valuation, I can speak to that a little bit because of the experience I've got, well, in the corporate transactions world, but valuation is really one for the accountants. They generally are the ones who look at a business's EBITDA and say, in this industry, a multiple of X might apply versus in this industry, a different multiple might apply. And that's how the valuation might come along. But what we really see is how different businesses distinguish themselves based on how they set themselves up legally for sale. Some businesses come into it and they get to the start of the sale process and they've got really kind of nothing in terms of records. Their, their share history is a mess. They haven't got any employment contracts. They haven't thought really about any of that kind of stuff. When you get to the point of sale, having to figure all of that stuff out in that moment becomes a real challenge. So there are tons of things businesses can be doing right from the very get-go to be putting themselves in the best position to be sold. Those aren't necessarily things that will affect the value. No, kind of the biggest things they can do in, in terms of value is obviously is accounting-wise increasing turnover, reducing costs, as simple as that. But things that they can do to make themselves more saleable from a legal perspective. So that's where we come in, really. I guess just sort of talk me through the sort of typical process. So seller will come to you saying, look, we've received this offer. Here are the terms. Then who are the sort of, what's the expertise you need to draw in to kind of see that deal through? Talk me through that process, sort of timelines and all of that. Okay, absolutely. It, it can, be a, can be quite a long draw-out process at times. So. Normally, the introduction comes to us through an accountant. We, we work quite closely with quite a few corporate finance accountants, and they might have been instructed by the seller to market the seller's company for sale. So they will have been, over a period of time, pitching that company to various networks they work in, various potential buyers for that company, and they will have attracted offers for the company, and they will have helped the seller consider which offer might be best and normally the point we are instructed is when the seller has decided this is an offer that looks like it's good for me so then then the accountants might make the introduction of the seller to us or perhaps it's someone we've already acted for and we know them already but that's when we get involved and the first step would probably be to help with some heads of terms which is really when you put that offer into a bit of a more formal document it's not you're setting out the whole deal at that stage, but it's it's getting the kind of key terms of the transaction down on a bit of paper to work from as the deal goes forward. The more you can agree at that stage, 
easier it becomes to negotiate things down the line. Heads of terms will also normally have some sort of exclusivity period in there. So because the buyer is committing a lot of time and effort to the deal, they want to know that the seller is not going to just go and sell their business to another party for a set period. So the exclusivity normally says to the seller, you cannot go and talk to any other third party for three, four months whilst this deal is going ahead. So that normally goes in the, in the heads of terms. Heads of terms are agreed and the next bit will be due diligence. So this is where the buyer is looking to understand basically everything they can possibly understand about the target company. Because when the buyer purchases the shares in the target company, they get everything that goes with it. Any employment claim that might be about to land on the company or any tax claim or anything. So the buyer will look to understand everything it can about that target company as soon as possible. Please don't know if I'm going on, but it's, it's quite a long process. No, I know. I guess on the due diligence side of things, like be useful to understand, you know, what's an accountant responsible for? What's the legal team responsible for? And how's that split? And how do you work with accountants? Yeah. So that's a good question. So typically the buyer will have their own, either their own internal accounting team or they'll have instructed their own accountants. And the, the buyer's accountants will normally issue a set of financial due diligence questions, which will be responded to by the seller's accountants with the seller's help. And then the buyer's lawyers, in the same way, will issue a legal due diligence questionnaire. So they're kind of distinct processes that run alongside each other. And obviously, they're financial due diligence fo focusing around things like have taxes been computed correctly and submitted correctly and the management accounts and just general financial forms of business whereas the legal side will focus on areas employment property dis any disputes the share history of the company any insurance matters that might be relevant insurance claims that sort of thing so they they run kind of concurrently normally right at the start of the deal, the finance DD and the legal DD. The financial DD is normally concluded in a more streamlined way because it's typically information that's more easy to access. Some of the legal DD can take a while to pull together. What are the sort of things that can take time? What kind of things can unravel from the investigations that you do? Yeah, so legal DD, this is where it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about putting your business in the best place to be saleable so i suppose the most important thing when you're trying to sell your company is that it's clear exactly who owns the shares and in what proportions and that they have the right to sell them if your company has kind of dished out shares like sweets every which way and the company's house filing history is a mess and just doesn't make sense then just not clear who owns the shares the, the buyer is obviously going to be concerned about that because they're paying a lot of money for for shares and they don't know who owns them. Worst case scenario is that someone comes out of the woodwork two years down the line saying, I own some of those shares, can you give me give me them back or something like that. So that's one issue that, that comes up is share history. But there's always issues around things like employment, if employment contracts don't look good or if there's been use of subcontractors where really they're kind of employees, that can be a big issue. That's the IR35 legislation, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. always comes up, always comes up. A lot of businesses do use subcontractors and they sail fairly close to the wind in terms of whether or not those people should actually be employed. So that's another one to be careful of. What other professionals 
usually involved in a deal outside of legal and accountancy? Well, so typically on the sort of transactions we work on it, there wouldn't necessarily need to be any other professionals. There's we use we rely on assistance from various other teams within our firm for the specifics. So that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, I thought that's sort sort of of leading question. (laughs) So I mean, I guess do you do? I guess you will have specialist employment lawyers and yeah, and commercial property. Do you have HR consultant lease stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it tends to be the commercial property team and the employment team who get involved to help when there's any kind of, any kind of specific questions on those aspects, they help. So they're, they're sort of like external experts to the deal, but unless something's really gone wrong or I've had a deal in the past where we had to get external environmental experts in because environmental liability can be quite serious if it's a possible issue and something, or you need specialist advice. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. What would that be? What would be an example where you'd need an environmental expert? So that deal was a garage, actually. It was a garage that was uh-huh. being sold. And where you've got a garage, you've got potential for like for oil leaks, so that sort of thing, which can lead to environmental liability. Not Hopefully not a problem for any of your... No, no. Hopefully yeah. not. No. Okay. What kind of time scales do you, do you see? What's a sort of quick deal? What's sort of average deal? And how long have you seen a deal? go on for i'd say quick deal is six weeks okay that's pretty quick from us being instructed to completion quick deal i'd say six weeks more average deal i'd say for two months to three months somewhere in that range and then on the other side i think i've had them well i had one deal that and that wasn't their fault but it was paused for about a year during covid and in the end probably took about two years in total but they can go on if they're going on that long normally something's really gone wrong and they they might even end up aborting yeah that was my next question really i was going to ask about deals that haven't gone through for whatever reason and what kind of things have got in the way of a deal completing successfully that's a good question it can happen for any number of reasons i suppose in my past experience it's been things such as well the, the buyer is is typically not tied to any sort of exclusivity so so the buyer at the same time as looking at the seller can also be looking at other potential targets and and if they don't like what they're hearing about the seller about the seller's company or your client's company they could move on to other targets but gee, i should say another issue that has derailed quite a few deals is external funding being pulled right is where where a buyer is relying on a bank to give them some money and that without that money, they can't do the deal. If that bank pulls the funding or changes the terms, starts charging a lot more interest, which we have seen recently. In a couple of cases, we've seen a kind of a mad panic on the buyer side to go and source a different side of funding. But that's something that can pull a deal off the table pretty quickly. I mean, is there a case there for then the seller is still keen for sort of renegotiating the deal terms? 
Have you seen that where someone's had funding pulled, the terms have been renegotiated for there to be more of a deferred element or something along those lines? Of course, yeah. It's never too late to do that in most corporate transactions because most corporate transactions work on the basis of a completion and exchange taking place at the same time. So if you think about when you typically buy a house, you you exchange contracts, which means you are committed to buy the place. You don't actually complete and get ownership until a date agreed, maybe two weeks later. But most corporate transactions tend to work on a simultaneous exchange or completion basis. So everything happens on one day. And until that day, there's nothing stopping either party backing out. Obviously, both parties, up to when you get to that point or get close to that point, they've invested a lot of time and money into the deal. So they aren't going to back out unless they have to. But if a week before the deal, the buyer can't get funding, there's, there's every chance that the seller would think about changing the terms of the deal slightly to get it over the line. There's nothing stopping that happening. It'd be useful just to sort of understand a bit about deal structures as well. You know, I know deals are put together in all sorts of different ways, but, you know, with a view to kind of thinking about service, creative agency service-led businesses, you know, roughly what's the sort of typical deal structure that you would see? Yeah, so, I mean, the most typical, the structure we've been talking about so far is really the, the typical trade sale. A seller or group of sellers own the share in the target company and they sell those shares to the buyer. They sell the whole company, so all the shares are sold to the new buyer. The sellers will typically stay in the business for a little while to help with the smooth over the transition, and they might even have some of their purchase price linked to them staying for a certain period of time because the buyer wants to encourage the continuity and, and that sort of thing. That's really the typical, most common deal structure, but that structure obviously requires a third party who is looking to buy the type of company that, that you're running. If that isn't such an option on the table and the sellers, the shareholders are looking to achieve an exit, two other fairly typical structures these days are either a management buyout or an employee ownership trust sale. Yeah, let's, yeah, should we do sort of one and then the other? What would a typical management buyout look like? What are the pros and cons of that? Yeah, so, so a management buyout results in a, a, a group of normally the senior management of the company. They tend to form a new company and they use that company to purchase the shares of the existing shareholders. So it allows the existing shareholders to leave or to, to exit and they are effectively replaced by the existing management team. So... That is fantastic. If you've got a strong management team who want to take a step up to ownership, it obviously requires there to be that group of individuals in your business who want to take that step up. I suppose the downside of it is the management team are possibly unlikely to have the level of funding required to pay a big chunk of the purchase price on completion. So normally with an MBO, quite a lot of the purchase price will be deferred over a period of years. and what effectively that means is that you are paid out by the profits of the company. The trading profits of the company are basically used to pay out the existing sellers. The other way that management can do it would be to take a big loan, third-party funding, and that can happen too. They get a loan from the bank, which enables them to pay out more money on completion. And then 
rather than paying back the sellers over a period of time, they're paying the bank over a period of time. Will banks lend for that? My experience with banks has been dismal, you know, in terms of what they'll actually lend for. So what would a bank look for in sort of target business to actually lend to a senior management team? Yeah, it's by no means guaranteed that they'd be able to find suitable lending for, for that. Um, it's really the track record of the company that is going to be making the difference. The bank will also probably ask for personal guarantees from the management team. So they are, are really putting themselves on the hook for that lending, which is obviously, it's obviously tough. <laughs> the banks, they just ask, they ask for like double a double sort of commitment, don't they? Because they're sort of saying, look, we'll lend against the profits of the business, but then we also want you to take a personal guarantee and like put your house up, essentially. Yeah. So they're sort of, they're double covered. Yeah. I mean, they might even extend to kind of triple coverage if they can find any physical assets of the business that can be secured against, like um, like any property. That would normally make it easier to get that sort of lending if you've got if you've got physical assets that can be used as security, but in most cases, I think they will want a personal guarantee from the directors, which is obviously not all that attractive for a lot of directors. It's a big kind of leap of faith almost for those for those directors, a big step up. But in the end, they, they end up owning the company. And if they are confident in their ability to run it, they might even think they can run it better than the, uh, the people before them. And they can do very well out of it. Yeah, it just doesn't really... It's not very supportive of people taking risks with in business. Yeah. Well, I suppose that the sellers can support the risk by allowing the payment on deferred terms. Right. So that the management team don't have to go and get bank funding. But then the sellers are left with the sellers are effectively, you have to rely on the management team continuing to run the company well in order for you to get paid. Because if yeah. the management team run the company into the ground, you're not going to get paid. So, yeah, there's got to be an element of trust there. I mean, ultimately, the cleanest exit for any business owner is a sale to a third party where you sell all of your shares, you get paid most of the money up front with the rest, with a small portion coming under deferred terms, maybe. But that's going to be the cleanest exit. If Yeah, it's just really hard to find, I think, at the lower end of the market. With these smaller sort of service-based businesses, I think it's very, very hard to find someone who will pay a load of cash up front, basically. Yeah. You do see it with aggregators looking to acquire multiple businesses in the sector and kind of build up a bit of a bank. But yeah, I appreciate it. So that would be private equity backed, presumably then, or is that what you're talking about? Entry, yeah. So we have seen it, but yes, I get you know, It's not so easy just to find some some rich benefactor who wants to come in and purchase your company it's normally someone in your industry who's looking to grow by by acquisition talk to me about the employee ownership trust because that's a sort of structure that i'm not that familiar with yeah but i know that they are quite popular at the moment certainly have been become very popular in the past 18 months or so really so employee ownership trust is is basically it's similar to an mbo in a lot of ways it's where the sellers, so the shareholders of a company, sell the shares in that company to an employee ownership trust. And what in doing so, in meeting all the conditions, the sellers can benefit from a capital gains tax exemption so they can avoid that. 
which is a huge kind of incentive for sellers to sell to an EOT. Is that complete exemption? So they just pay zero capital gains. So it's better than business asset disposal relief, entrepreneurs relief. Yeah, it's a big incentive to use an EOT. And whether or not that relief, tax relief will always be there. Who knows? There is a, there is a government consultation on EOTs going on at the moment. I've heard that the downside for the employees who benefit from that trust is they then potentially have to pay income income tax rates if that business is then sold further down the line. Yeah. So typically when you deal with an EOT, we suggest that an EOT is probably not the right transaction if there's an onward sale, if right. that's a possibility. It tends to be something that uh, we're going to sell the, the company to it, to an EOT it's going to be run and managed by the EOT for a long period of time. It's not intended to flip that company on and sell it again. In order to benefit from the tax relief, there are really strict conditions that you have to comply with in terms of control of the company and various other things. But it's an attractive structure for sellers because they obviously get the benefit of that um, capital gains relief. Um, Also, employees, they're able to get tax-free bonuses of up to 3,600 a year, completely tax-free. Um, so there are some real attractive parts to it. It can be quite relatively straightforward to put together. Um, there's not the element of there being a third party really involved, like on a trade sale. So it can be quite friendly and can be quite nice to put together. But it does, as with an MBO, the sellers are likely to be paid out over a period of time. Yeah. I know Riverford has gone sort of completely employee-owned. Do you happen to know if that's the structure that they used? I don't know that one, I'm afraid. No, the most commonly known example was actually John Lewis, but I believe they've actually they've come out of their employee ownership fairly recently, which is which is awkward. But we've done quite a few of them recently. They all seem to be working very well. Employees, employees feel I think as you would if you feel a greater that basically the, the company is owned for the benefit of its employees. So I think as an employee, you would feel possibly feel more invested in the business. And if you're working in type of industry where people are really the main resource, I can see why that would be so attractive to get those people invested in the long-term growth of the company. What other types of exits are there? Sort of main thing is trade sale, probably then followed by management buyout, then employee ownership trust. You know, have you worked on any deals that have gone to private equity? I know that there are, you know, options available to like list on a small cap market thing like AIM. I don't know. Can you talk about some of just the alternative? I know they're not so common, but some of those alternative options. So AIM listings, we dealt with one of those back when I was just joining the team as a trainee. So I don't, don't have a huge amount of experience with those, to be honest. But yeah, that's where business lists on, on the alternative investment market. In terms of private equity and, um, well, if it's a private equity backed buyer, there's no real difference from a, a trade sale. It's the same thing. There can be kind of more, not a, a sale as such, but an, an exit to a private equity where there's investment and then there's a sale of shares over time, that sort of thing. I mean, these sales can be structured in, in any which way. Yeah, I'm trying to think. What? No, 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 that's fine. Yeah, I know we've covered all the main ones, but I was just sort of thinking about some of the other options. So if someone is looking to sell a business and wants to engage with some 
nice lawyers who don't charge London prices, what are the benefits of coming to Norwich? Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> um, absolutely. I mean, I think we would say that we truly provide London service, but at a lower price. And obviously with tech the way it is these days, there's, there's really no downsides to not being able to meet face-to-face. We meet face-to-face with our clients all the time, other teams, but actually being in the same room is, is not necessary for these transactions. So are looking to exit your business at, in the kind of one to 10 million pound range. I, I truly believe that there's no reason you would get any better service from a London law firm than you would from a firm, more regional firm such as LP, where I'm working. The firms such as us, I won't just purely talk about us, but I mean, we have all kind of the expertise necessary for those sorts of deals in terms of employment, IP, commercial property, and any ancillary issues around disputes. It's, it's just, they are deals that can be dealt with very efficiently at this level. And when charge out and time rates are significantly lower, the price is going to end up being lower. So yeah, I don't think there's... Yeah. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask, what kind of value add can you provide that maybe, you know, if you just Google corporate lawyers, I need someone to represent me to sell my business. And you end up with someone, you know, who offers a really good rate, (laughs) you know, what are the sort of pitfalls? Like what might you not be getting by going with the cheapest option? Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. (laughs) The biggest thing that we, as your lawyers in a corporate transaction, acting for a seller, is trying to avoid any situation in which you might end up having to repay some amount of the purchase price. Because when you sell your business, differently if you sell your house, you will be expected to give warranties about all manner of things in your business. So the warranty is a, is a promise, a contractual promise about something in your business. For example, the company does not have any ongoing litigation. And you'll be expected to give that warranty saying you don't have any litigation at the point of sale. And that's a very basic example. But if you give that warranty by signing the share purchase agreement, and then it turns out that you, in fact, were aware there was a claim about to be brought against you, the buyer may well try and bring a claim for breach of warranty and ask for some amount of the purchase price to be repaid to them. Our main job is to firstly negotiate those warranties to limit their scope as far as possible. And secondly, to make sure we properly disclose against those warranties. So what we do is a a whole exercise of reviewing all of the information that you and kind of extracting information about your business out of you in order to disclose against the warranties and anything we tell them before the sale in something called disclosure letter is that will then prevent a breach of warranty claim being made. So I kind of view that as our biggest responsibility and biggest value add above you just going and signing signing the buyer's share purchase agreement, not engaging a lawyer. You'll likely end up with a breach of warranty claim, unfortunately, and they can then come back and, and look for some money back from you. So that, that's really our biggest biggest thing that I think we achieve for clients is avoiding those. And we, in touch word, we haven't had any breach of warranty claims come back on deals since I've been in the team anyway. There's a practical consideration with breach of warranty in that make a claim against someone, there's a certain 
cost associated with that, isn't there? So, so there is a sort of natural, like preventative mechanism that hopefully, whatever the issue is, can be resolved between the two parties. And it's got to be worth whatever that breach is, it's got to be a certain value, right, for it to be worth the buyer kind of bringing that claim against you, because it's going to cost them money as well. Yeah. And typically, we would negotiate into the share purchase agreement some limitations on when the buyer can make claims. And one of those would be something called a de minimis level, which effectively knocks out claims below a certain value. So anything below that value is excluded. The buyer can't bring a claim in respect of that amount. And that's just something that those sorts of terms need to be and negotiated properly and, and to be appropriate to the purchase price. But the other thing the buyers will always look to do is put in indemnities, which are a stronger remedy for the buyer. And they will put those in for things that they identify out of due diligence. So if they, if in the due diligence, they identify that you haven't, I don't know, you haven't got any proper employment contracts in place, the buyer will look to put in indemnities for that potential liability if it comes back to an indemnity is is a much easier claim. I won't kind of bore you with the legal details of why, but it's a easier claim for the buyer to bring in a, a breach of warranty claim. So there's kind of and because of the various ways the deals can be structured, the buyer might have if there's deferred payments, the buyer might be able to just deduct the value of that claim from the deferred payment. Right. Or yeah. It's buyer, whoever, it makes it easier. Yeah, for whoever holds the money holds yeah. the power, really. You've got to be extra careful if the buyer has got deferred payments because as long as they've got that money, they have the power to hold it back until they've resolved whatever claim it is. Yeah. Just another question. Now, this sort of probably fits in earlier on in our conversation, but can you just talk about a little bit about the difference between a share sale and an asset sale and in what circumstances it would be one or the other? So a share sale is the shareholders of a company selling their shares to a buyer. And that, when you sell the shares in a company, you sell everything about that company goes with the shares. So a buyer, sorry, sellers will typically prefer a share sale because it's a cleaner exit. The company, the company is transferred with all its, with all its li- assets and liabilities to the buyers and they they own it moving forwards. An asset deal is where rather than the shareholders of a company selling the shares, the actual company itself sells its business and assets. So that can be beneficial to the buyer because the buyer effectively can pick and choose which assets and liabilities it wants to take on. And normally, in most cases, assets will transfer and liabilities will stay behind. So the company sells the business and assets and then the money gets paid into the company and then the company will typically be wound up and the excess in there distributed amongst the shareholders. But most transactions, if they're of a substantial size, kind of over at least over a million, most of them tend to be share deals unless there's a good reason for it to be an asset asset sale. But if they're smaller deals, there can often be quite a good reason to do it as an asset deal. Asset deals are easier to document legally because not everything is passing to the buyer as it is with a share deal. So that the buyer needs kind of less protection in a, in a way. So they're typically easier to document legally. So for a smaller 
lower value transaction and asset deal can be can make sense. And I know there's some restrictions around employment, isn't there? If you're doing an asset purchase, the employees come with under 2P. Absolutely. 2P applies so that the employees automatically transfer across to the buyer and that can cause some issues if the buyer doesn't want them and there's issues around how you deal with those liabilities and... and redundancies like pre and post completion and that could be quite complicated to deal with so that's a different element that doesn't really apply on a share deal because the employees stay with the company because and the company is transferred yeah i know that's a whole there's a, there's loads of nuances aren't there to the different types of deal there and there's lots of stuff to dig into but that's a useful overview yeah well yeah hopefully i was to give kind of some kind of background to all those different types of yeah no i think it. that's great no thank you very much that's very very useful i don't know if you've got any oh, oh good trying to think of anything else that's worth us going over but we've touched on, on no, i think it's really handy it's just useful to have a, a sort of legal perspective on it because all the people I've had so far have just been people who've either mostly people who've sold their businesses, but some who have bought. But you know, they sort of touch on the legal side, but it's just useful to have that yeah. side of it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.